welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and everyone not yet finished sewing their cosplay Mr. Sinister capes in time for the next Hellfire Gala. I continue to be Jason, and on the other end of this microphone continues to be Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you this fine spring day? I'm very good. I actually think the Sinister costume is probably the easiest one ever. You just get a diamond and stick it to your forehead. And then you're well, done. I think the cape, right? Everyone's going to want to do the cape. And that, that, I think that's where your real time sink's going to be. Yeah. Well, uh, I do have, well, today we're going to be talking about Immoral X-Men number two, Bishop War College number two, and Wolverine number 31. But first, two very brief news items, both connected to the third Hellfire Gala I just alluded to. Uh, so Marvel has announced that the Fall of X era officially begins with the July 26th release of X-Men Hellfire Gala 2023 number one, of which there will be no number two. There are a few more details out there describing what's going to happen at the gala and what's going to launch us into Fall of X, but they started seeming awful spoilery to me, so I just stopped reading them. But they're out there if you want to Google them up. So, big picture looks like this. Sins of Sinister wraps up at the end of April, then it's right on to the Before the Fall one-shots in May, June, and early July, and then straight on to the gala and Fall of X. So I, I do wonder just how much of a conclusion Fall of X is going to be. Is it be will it be seen as an endpoint to this whole era that began with House and Powers, or or just another phase in that era? Any any guesses there, Ruben? I don't think the story is going to be dramatically different than it is today. I could see them doing away with the resurrection queue and then keeping everything else, but I, I don't see this as you know a complete reset or anything dramatic. It does kind of feel like some writers are starting to kind of finish off storylines, especially uh, the Wolverine X, uh, X-Force kind of ones. Maybe that is a clue that we're actually going to wrap up this whole phase, or, or maybe not. Maybe it just means the writers, you know, decided to wrap those up. Well, anyway, the second item is that there will be a live, real-world, meet-space Hellfire Gala happening as part of San Diego Comic-Con. That live gala will happen on July 22nd just a few days before the Hellfire Gala comic drops. Marvel invites attendees who will have to be, quote, gold members of D23, the official Disney fan club, to, again, quote, dress in super-powered style, fashioning the chicest looks embellished by their own epic abilities. Now, I don't know about you, Ruben, but I do not plan on attending this real-world gala. I prefer to practice my comic book nerdery on the internet and from the comfort and privacy of my own basement. So are you are you getting all dolled up as uh, Emma or something and, and going out there? <laughs> oh, God, that's a horrible image. Nobody <laughs> needs to see me as Emma. Um, but no, I've actually never been to San Diego Comic-Con. It's one of those, I don't know, what, I don't want to call it like bucket list items, but something I would like to do at some point. And I actually have gone in cosplay before, but not X-Men cosplay. Oh, so, wow. yeah, I would I would maybe do it. Although I feel like if you do it at San Diego, you probably just get overshadowed by that all is professional the cosplayers. Leagues. Yeah, that is right to the yeah. top, I guess. I The only real convention, nerdy kind of convention I've gone to was a role-playing game convention I went to in high school when, you know, me and some fellow nerds were, were playing Dungeons & Dragons and stuff. Uh, but I have gone to conventions in San Diego, but those were both homebrewing conventions, which is, all, I'm guessing, a very different vibe. Very different, yeah. Very different vibe. <laughs> I went to a very early PAX, you know, Penny Arcade Expo, okay. and I dressed up as Sam Fisher, the Splinter Cell character. Nice. And my wife went as Chun-Li, which is very stereotypical. Um, <laughs> but in any event, we made it onto Kotaku, so that gave me wow. some credit, right? I was pretty proud of that. That was my one and only cosplay outing. Okay, on to the actual books this week. 
And we are starting off with, oh, and I'm scrolling because we've changed the order, scrolling down to Immoral X-Men number two, aka Sins of Sinister part six, four letter words. This is our second and penultimate visit to the year 100 in our Sins of Sinister timeline. It is written, of course, by Mr. Kieran Gillen, art by Andrea DeVito, colors by Jim Carolampidus, letters by Clayton Cowles, and design by Jay Bowen. Just Jay Bowen. I don't know why it always tickles me when he's the only one there and we don't get the Jay Bowen and uh, and uh, Tom Muller. It's usually Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. So I'm not sure exactly where the line is drawn that you kick Tom Muller's name off the book, but Tom Muller had squat to do with this book, apparently. So this, I'm not going to you know bury the lead here. I like this book a lot. Of course I did. It's, it's my kind of book. <laughs> and this is a story of plots and counterplots of betrayals yes. and counterbetrayals, which I mean is fitting because all our characters are Mr. Sinister. You know, one way or another, they're all Mr. Sinister. Yeah. Uh, so our narrator for this issue is Hope. Her major function this time period, and, and one she appears to really enjoy, is to mop up the last bits of the galactic resistance to the rule of the Sinisters. So in this era, uh, the Sinister known as the Pax, as in P-A-X as in peace. The opposition to the Pax uh, is, or mostly was, a coalition called the Compact. And it's basically every alien race that you've ever heard of in a Marvel book. Yeah, they're part of this. So Hope and Exodus are aboard a starship at the end of Pax territory, pushing out further into the remains of the Compact. We see that Hope has several visibly cybernetic body parts, including her left arm and part of her face. Now, you might recall last issue, Hope said in the dialogue that she had a cybernetic hand, and we didn't actually see that in the art. This time, we actually see it, plus some other bits that she must have added over the last, you know, nine decades since we saw her last. Yep. So, Hope channels the power of Exodus to be fueled by belief, and she makes everyone else in the fleet kind of just say how much they believe in her. Now she's all charged up and ready to go and kill some aliens. They're opposed by a version of the Super Scroll that now has four Ben Grimm arms, each of withholds a war hammer like a Kree accuser. So that's a nice little Kree scroll crossover. Now, Exit, of, co- of course, defeats them easily, and Hope gets a clear enough visual of their target planets to be able to deploy the very funnily named L-bombs. Uh, these are unstable quadruple chimera that combine the powers of Lila Cheney, teleportation, Firestar, nuclear fission, Harry Leland, you know, that's the Hellfire guy who can increase mass, and in current day Krakoa, he's their UN ambassador, and Micromax. There's a deep pull. He's a, a growing and shrinking mutant who had been part of the 90s Excalibur sequence series, and I guess just showed up in that Betsy Braddock comic that I'm not reading, but I, I hear he's in that. So, long story short, you drop some L-bombs, and this combination makes planets not be planets anymore. So we can <laughs> see how the PAX has been so successful. So, yes. a, a nice opening uh, action scene to get us get us into this. Yes. From here, we get a peek at Hope's Captain's Log, just opening up all the many, many Star Trek references we're getting in here to fill us in on a bit of the history that we missed. Uh, the various galactic powers were too slow in joining together, and by the time they all realized that the threat from Earth was bigger than their mutual animosities, it's way too late. Uh, Hope says that she expects the last remnants of the compact to be mopped up in the next 20 years or so. We also get a brief mention that Storm is still alive, which she'd better be, we're reading her book next week, but that Mystique has been killed, or at least Hope thinks she has. Now, this could be a big deal, as the only reason that Destiny wants this timeline to continue is that Mystique is still alive in it. If that's no longer true, then Destiny, if, if she's still alive, may come over to Team Reboot the Universe. 
we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But that was a, a nice little thing to throw into this uh, data page. What any notice anything else interesting on the data page? No, but I, I did think it was pretty effective use of data page, right? It fills in the happenings over the last you know, hundred years and um it's just done in an interesting way. Yeah, it, it really lets us see Hope's character, how it's changed. She's gotten uh really full of herself. A little too big for her uh, hopeful britches there. It it does have her saying things that she already would know, which I don't really like that in science fiction, but it gets the point across. It's better than spending you know, 12 pages of, of bad dialogue on it. So from here, we head back to Pac's home base and see what the other Sinisters are up to. Location starts off a little vague. We find out later on it's located on this red diamond-shaped space station connected to an unknown planet by some kind of space elevator. Very cool science fiction. The Sinisters, of course, abandoned Earth more than 90 years ago. So this shouldn't be Earth, I don't think. Instead of Arbor Magna, Mutant Resurrection now takes place in a spot called the Reliquary Arbor. Now, that's a heck of a name, don't you think? Seeing the word reliquary again so soon, that's not a common word. But we saw the reliquary that Mother Righteous is putting together to, you know, that's going to be a weapon for her. But this reliquary is even more literal. So a reliquary is a container for a relic, which in Christianity, at least, is often like a part of a saint's body. There's places to get like a, a finger bone or something, where this reliquary arbor is filled with cloned bits of hope. Now, these little bits have enough of her power to let resurrections happen here without her, so she can be off in space blowing up planets. This does confirm that resurrection is still a thing, and it's distinct from cloning. Hope's narration says, quote, True resurrection isn't quite as important now that we've got the clone vats, but the clones aren't OG Krakoa. We are just a superior method. It's not really clear to me what the difference is. Do you have any ideas why they would still need the resurrection when they could just make another clone? Most likely it's the memories and personality and experience that you're not necessarily copying over as effectively with a I, clone. But, but couldn't you if you wanted to? If you wanted to just, you know, cerebro memories into Wipe a clone? Over the mind. Yeah, I suppose you could. Not you could really try. sure. They, but they go out of their way to make sure that we know it's still an important thing. So from here, we see the other four members of the five performing performing their duty without hope, and we see another mutant hatching from an egg, just like back in the old days. So again, it's I think this is just to let us know they're still doing that, although it's in more of an, an almost Eternals-looking area, much more machine-like, technological, not so much of the Krakoan growing plants and earth kind of a, a feel to it. Yeah. I would say the other thing is maybe there's some issue with, you know, every additional clone you make breaks down genetically. We've seen that before with Sinister. That's true. Could be. And we also know that some mutants, like they say Hope and Gene, don't clone very well. So maybe they can resurrect but not clone. Again, exactly why? Who knows? I think it just makes, makes the story work. At this point, we're introduced to the Chekhov's gun of this issue, a brand shiny new mutant starship called the Marauder, which is powered by Shaw batteries, Unis glands, and a Tempest Magic Drive biosubstrate. I don't know what any of those things are, really, but they sound both impressive and also disgusting, which is very much what uh, Gillen's going for here. Yeah. So as all Star Trek fans know, every good ship needs a captain, and the captain of the Marauder will be provided by the original Mr. Sinister. Hey, there he is, who you remember is only still allowed to be alive because he convinced Emma and the rest of the council that he was the only one who could keep on making better and better Chimera. And he says the captain is going to be the pinnacle of his chimerical art, Rasputin IV, who we met first in that future timeline in Powers of X, and we saw an image of her in the last issue of this series, 
But here she is on panel in the flesh. Rasputin Four is the first stable quintuple chimera. This one has five blades. She carries genes from Colossus for strength, Kate for impermeability, Unus again for force fields. Boy, Unus comes up so much more in these cloning things than he ever does actually on panel. Yes, yeah. Uh, he, we saw him last really in uh, X of Swords, right? Yeah, that's the last time we actually saw him. That was a long time ago. Yeah, I don't even remember what he did then. <laughs> I think he died. I think that's what he did. <laughs> pretty. I think he. I think he went out pretty quick. Uh, so after Unus, there's also some Laura Kinney in there for aggression and healing, and finally a bit of Quentin Choir, speaking to people we haven't seen in a while, for his Omega level mental powers. So she's pretty much unstoppable, which she demonstrates by easily slaughtering about a half dozen Mystique slash Grey Crow Chimera in this timeline's genetic-based version of the danger rule. At the end of this demonstration, Sinister casually lets slip that, you know, he's he's done. Rasputin IV is the last contribution to this cause. He says that five mutants in one is just barely possible, six, right out. Can't do it. Don't even ask me to. Not going to try. It's strange of him to openly admit this when he knows that he's only being kept around as long as there's still more for him to do. So, hmm, I wonder if he's up to something. Hope is ready to ditch him ASAP. And the rest of the council seems not very far behind. So what did you think of uh, Rasputin the Fourth? I think she's cool. I thought she was cool back when we first saw her in Oxbox, but um, it's neat to see her again. She has a strange um, hero complex, but I guess she mm-hmm. was bred to have that. She has a strange relationship with Mr. Sinister here, yeah. yeah. She doesn't really know, uh, know the real him. Yes. All right, now we see what is apparently... The very, very first meeting between Mr. Sinister and Mother Righteous. He didn't even know who the heck she is and how exactly she gets here. Wave your hand, say magic. That's fine. Yes. Uh, so she gives him a book that she has, I guess she has written, but the book is locked. Mother Righteous gives him the book for free, but he's got to pay for the key by saying, of course, thank you to her. We know she collects things. That was like from her very kind of first appearance. We don't know why, or do they give her some kind of power? It's it's not very clear. That seems to be like an aha that Kieran Gillen is saving for down the line. Yeah. Now, this is a big, thick, fancy book, but the only page we get to see of it seems to contain all, all the information. It's all on one page. Uh, it tells the story of the original Nathaniel Essex and how even though calculating machines in his day were incredibly primitive, he knew that they would get better and would one day take over the world. Now, he didn't like that idea at all. So he created four clones, and here we learn the purpose of each clone is to find each find a new way of trying to beat those machines. These clones are, of course, Orbis Stellaris. His job is to explore the cosmic powers, like, I guess, those progenitors. Then there's Dr. Stasis, the only other Nathaniel Essex that Sinister knew about. He had been exploring the possibilities of post-humanity, but Mother Righteous's Nightcrawlers killed him back in year 10. Remember, he had that Wolverine blade out of a tail that looked kind of kind of shaky. Anyway, he, he's, he's not around anymore. Next, you've got Mother Righteous herself, who was, of course, exploring the power of magic. And finally, Mr. Sinister himself, who was into, quote, Essex factors, unquote, which is, you know, the X gene, mutation, yeah, chimeras, all that stuff. Yeah, all that, all that the mutant gene stuff. So the book also lays out on the table what we had already figured out, that the goal here for all the Essexes is dominion. Reach dominion level, become a power beyond time and space, you've won the game. You can't be defeated, you can't even be sent back to square one by the death of a Moira. So now Mr. Sinister knows what he's up against, and, and who he's up against. You know, himself, more or less. 
Now, Sinister really, really wants access to his Moiras, so he can take all this amazing knowledge with him back in time, start over again with a huge head start. But of course, he doesn't have access to those Moiras. But what I really wonder here is, why did Mother Righteous tell him all this stuff? What did, what does she gain from it? Like what? I mean, we know that she has to tell him because we're here at the middle of the story, and we've got to get it going. And that's why we need to know, but why does her character in-universe want Mr. Sinister to know about the other Essexes? Any ideas? Yeah, I don't really have any theories, but they've been doing a good job of answering these sorts of questions so far. So I'm willing to assume that this mystery will be answered intentionally. Yeah, it's, it's clearly intentional and, and probably pretty soon. We don't have a whole lot of time left to go. My my best guess is that she thinks that she can get Sinister and Orbis Dolores to maybe kill each other off, or at least you know, kill one, weaken the other, leaving her as you know the last one standing. That seems like the kind of thing she would do, but we don't have to see that on panel just yet. So now we're on to our biggest betrayal. One, I don't know if I buy or not. I'm, I'm curious what you think, Ruben. So Hope and Exodus are off the blow-ups, a few more planets, all in a day's work. But when they're out there fighting the Chitauri, uh, Exodus pulls out the rug from Hope by moving far enough away from her that she can no longer use her power to access his power. This you know, leaves her a sitting duck for the Chitauri. We don't actually see her die, but when we leave her, she is in rough shape and seems about to be killed. Yeah. Now, Exodus says that he's doing this because, well, first off, he finds Hope kind of annoying, I think we're supposed to pick up on. Because uh, she is. But he says he's doing it because hope is no longer necessary for the council or for the church. Here we get into some of Gillen's religious commentary. So Exodus says that a messiah is no good if she's actually here in front of us. The purpose of a messiah, he says, is to inspire people to pray for that messiah's return, making hope more useful to him dead than alive. Again, he, he seems really sick of all her, you know, look at me nonsense. But do you think would Essex, Exodus, the most true believing of all true believers, turn on his Messiah like this? Or did that seem weird to you too? Is he sinisterized? Of course he is. That's the real question. So if he is, then yes, I could see him doing a betrayal. That seems to be very much what a core element of being a sinister that, is. That is an excellent point. Yeah. We know these sinisterized keep some of their personalities, but also we have that sinister mixed in, like uh Sinisterized Professor X keeps talking about the dream. Yes. But his dream is a whole lot different than the real Professor X dream. So I'll go with that. Yeah, we've got Hope here leaning into the, you know, and she's been a reluctant Messiah, right? When she's not in this sinister version. And here she seems to be delighting in the fact that she's got people's adoration and seems to kind of even ask for it. Yeah, she certainly leans into it. And again, we have skipped 90 years of their relationship. A lot can change in nine yeah, decades, so yeah. we don't know what's gone on between them for a long, long time. She's been annoying him for 90 years. That's, that's what it is. <laughs> it makes me think of like an old married couple yes. where you're thinking, how are they still together? They hate each other. Yes. Like, uh, I don't know, like Everybody Loves Raymond. Ever watch that show? Yeah. There's uh, the older parents there are always fighting with each other. I, I, it's a weird comparison, the uh, Everybody Loves Raymond parents to Hope and Exodus, but there you have it. Uh, while we're on the topic, do you think that the Quiet Council is in on Operation Death to Hope, or is this just Exodus freelancing on his own? Um, I kind of feel like he's just freelancing. It seems like all of the members of the Quiet Council are doing their own thing, although they're frenemies. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they would argue since they've got the vat of hope limbs that apparently provide the resurrection. Yes, they were very careful to show us that early, and it, it didn't seem artificial either, right? 
It didn't seem like I'm showing you this so I can do something later. It was very natural and part of the flow, which was well done. But the thing is, if it is just Exodus, they can certainly pop out a new hope, not not Star Wars, the character, uh, from the Reliquary Arbor anytime they want. So again, maybe you're right that once he says, oh, by the way, Hope's dead, they'll say, yeah, we don't really need her anyway. You know, we've already killed most of the aliens, so we don't need her for that. We don't need her for the resurrection, and they probably didn't like her much either. And we see that with, with the original Essex. It's one of those ask for forgiveness, not for permission deals. Yeah. I, I just assume it's the same way they're they're dealing with Nathaniel. Because even though he completed his five, you know, power Chimera or Chimera. <laughs> mm-hmm. Chimera, not Chimera. Um, I would assume having a very effective genetic engineer still provides uses to your group, but they also seem happy to get rid of him. Yeah, I guess this is part and parcel of having everybody be Mr. Sinister. Yes. They don't want to say out loud to each other, I would like you all to be dead, but you're not useful to me. But once there's that opportunity, they're going to take it. So we'll certainly see going forward if they bring her back. And I think you're probably right that they're all going to say, yeah, we don't need it. And you get that with the four clones too, right? They're doing the exact same thing. They're sort of frenemies until each other's value to each other is overwrite. And then it's just like, time to kill you. Yep, absolutely. Okay, on to our last major twist of the issue. Uh, Mr. Sinister gives Ras- Rasputin 4 one last, quote, gene treatment. But what this treatment does, if Sinister is telling the truth here, and I, I think he is, at least in this, uh, what he does is to, quote, dissolve her genetic chains. I'm guessing this injection does the same thing that Vox Ignis's Scream of Change does to some of those Nightcrawlers in that other book, where it just kind of frees her from the whole Sinister personality situation. Now, the change isn't so obvious here, since we don't know Rasputin Fourth so well. And Mr. Sinister immediately kind of chains her up again, metaphorically, by suddenly becoming Michael Caine of the last act of A Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> I've, I've changed. I've seen the error of my ways. Yes. Uh, he wants to return to Krakoa, he says, to the way it was, uh, because it was so perfect back then, not for my own selfish benefit. No, no, no. For the benefit of the world. And boy, I thought this was really written so well. It was, because... We know about Sinister, right? He manipulates with these types of dialogues all the time, right? But I'm a sucker. I'm reading it. And I'm like, oh, he's learned from his mistakes. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little more cynical. I'm reading that and saying, wait, come on, Kieran Gillen. You're not going to do this, are you? <laughs> oh, man, you're making Sinister into a, oh, I see what you're doing. Yeah, you we'll clever see. son of a gun. <laughs> he, he, he got me just for like half a panel. Yeah. And once you really see Sinister laying it on so thick, and the art here is great. Yeah. Right, these these facial expressions of he's practically rending his garments and and pulling at his own hair. Yeah. So yeah, the, the art here is fantastic. The fact that he kneels, only you can save us. <laughs> <laughs> save us yeah, all. And I mean, I think that panel is right out of uh, Star Wars: A New Hope. Yeah. That really looks like Luke Skywalker, you know, kneeling in front of R two D two and triggering that only you know. Obi-Wan Kenobi, your only hope. I think maybe that's a little nod to that as well. But yeah, so what they do is she's completely won over. She believes him. Uh, she's doing everything he's going to say. So they go and steal the spaceship, right? They go to steal the Marauder. Uh, we get to see the inside of the Marauder, which looks exactly like a Star Trek you know, deck from the, the, the command deck. We see the chair. We see the people at all their stations, captain on deck. It's it's wonderful. Uh, they launch. Uh, they're told, you're not allowed to go. Hey, Marauder, where are you going? And they launch Proteus torpedoes. Not photon torpedoes, but Proteus torpedoes, which 
we don't need to know what Proteus torpedoes are. We just see that they blow a big hole in the side of the space station so that they can leave. Now I've lost my place, so Jim's going to have to edit this, edit this out. Ah, okay. Rasputin continues her James T. Kirk act by calling down to engineering to, quote, fire up the magic Tempest cores, give me everything, warp factor X. Oh, man, I love that. <laughs> it's just using the X for the 10, just, just a throwaway line. Yes. Just Gillen knows that they've overused it, that it's ridiculous, that it's a joke. And so he, he tops it off by making it an actual joke just for a sec. I mean, how much fun do you think Gillen was having? Writing, writing this scene. He must have been laughing to himself the whole damn time. I mean, this whole, I, I want to give credit to the artist here. The sci-fi imagery here is perfect. Like, I, I go panel to panel and it looks like a really high octane oh, yeah. action scene. Everything looks futuristic enough to be like, oh yeah, this is the future, but familiar enough to not just be lost as to what's going on. Agreed. And even though they're throwing out jokes, right? Like, this spaceship chase looks badass. And you see this little it does spaceship that actually looks like it's probably the you know, most powerful ship in the universe at this point, and just like beelining past all these, you know, other ships chasing it. Looks super cool. It does. This is Andrea DeVito in, in Colors by Jim Carolampidus. I'm just showing off that I want to say Carolampidus at this point. Uh, and yeah, he does, he walks that fine line between getting the jokes and references across, but still having it completely work on its own merits, right? If you don't, if you don't think about Star Wars and Star Trek, it's just a cool, badass science fiction story. Oh, and then we have one last little little addition here where Rasputin 4 asks Sinister, so how long do you think this mission is going to take? And of course he says, five years, which refers back to the opening of every Star Trek show, which is a five-year mission to seek out new life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, their mission goes on a lot longer than five years. And I think it's safe to say that Rasputin and Sinister's mission is going to last more than five years as well. <laughs> Especially since the next time we're going to I see think them it might, is approximately yeah, nine hundred years yes. from now. <laughs> I would predict that's how long it takes. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's where you end up. And I continue to love this event. Gillen's writing. I can see why some people who aren't into Gillen, like this, is very very like distilled, high octane, high proof Gillen, right? If you don't like that style, you're gonna hate this book. Yes. But if you like that thing. It, this is, you know, you read a book and you think, oh, this book wasn't written for me. This book was written for me. Yeah. I was really happy reading this one. And I don't know. I've been happy with the series, I guess, pretty much since it started. Maybe the Nightcrawler issues are a little little bit down, but they're not really that down. And so, yeah, I'm ready for the next one. I expect the uh, Storm issue to be very cool and happy to see the conclusion in a few, I guess, next month. Yeah. So I, I think we've talked about the, the art a little bit. I just want to say it's just really effective at selling all the personalities of all these awful people, right? All the scheming, betraying, manipulating, the lying. It's right there in the art. You don't need to read the dialogue balloons to see what these people think of each other. You could, like in that sinister Rasputin scene, you could, you know, clear off all the dialogue balloons and you would still know that sinister was putting on an act here. Just, yeah. just in the way they he draws it. I would say even looking at that very last picture of Sinister where he's talking about how long this mission's going to take. You know, as I said, I was completely suckered into his, like, I've repented, you know, scene. And then you see him looking like he's kind of scheming, right? In this last <laughs> panel. It doesn't say anything in here, right? There's no dialogue or, like, no thought yeah. bubble or anything. It's like, you sucker or anything. But there's just kind of a look that's like, no, he actually hasn't found humility. This is just another of course. manipulation on his part. His next scheme, and I can't wait to see what is even 
even further scheming. So I guess I'm going to give this, oh, I don't want to go too crazy, call it an 8.5 out of 10. Yeah, I'll go a little up higher than that, say 8.8. 8. I really loved it. It was like very satisfying. Fair enough. Our next book, which is Bishop War College, number two of five, Most Likely to Succeed. It's written by Jay Holtham. Now we've got a split art team. For the Bishop's World section, it's pencils by Sean Damien Hill, inks by Victor Nava, and then back on Krakoa, we've got pencils and inks, inks by Alberto Foch, uh, colors by Espen Grundetjern for both universes, uh, Travis Landman, all the letters, and designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. Got the both of them here. So now, Ruben, you're going to tell us all about <laughs> Bishop War College number two. So lay it on me. It's not as good. <laughs> it's a tough comparison. Yes. yes. Hard to follow. Yes, yeah. Uh, I, I actually, I think I was more between the two of us. We were talking about this before the recording. I was more positive on this issue than you were, but I don't think it's an amazing story. It's a lot of filler, unfortunately. And the bad parts of it are kind of your trope of people that I guess should be working together, just kind of antagonizing each other. That feels like lazy writing. And I see that in a lot of these X books where. You just have like an alleged team, right? But they spend four or five pages just shouting each other down before they have to you know, come around and work together to accomplish whatever their shared goal is. And since the first issue of this series was basically 15 pages of Bishop yelling at these people, I'm just like, okay, this is just the yelling book. I, I needed more than just more yelling. Anyways, as far as what happens, uh, we start with Bishop in this new alternate dimension that he's kind of been teleported to when. Uh, Tempo's powers went haywire because of the goo that she got sprayed with. And he sees the, I guess, roughly 90s X-Men, except they're all black now. Um, doesn't believe where he's front, where he is. And he gets into kind of a fight with them until Xavier shows up. And then Xavier calls this world's bishop to come talk to him. And that bishop is not a member of the X-Men. But that's pretty much all that happens. Um, yeah, many, many pages of them fighting to like no real effect. Now we're on to the second half of the book, which is decidedly different from that first half. So Ruben, what did you think of the back on Krakoa section? It feels like they're trying to make it big, particularly by showing that the Fenris twins are talking to Moira X yes. about some secret plan, but I'm not convinced that it is big. It, it felt like she was written as some generic contact at Orcus, and then they went back <laughs> and said, call her Moira, because there's nothing... <laughs> particularly Moira-ish about her. We don't see her whole robot-y form. We don't see any of her, her personality characteristics. It's just, oh, they're talking to Moira. And that made me exciting for excited for like a panel. But then, yeah, she's she's just there as a name. Yeah, so the the I guess the pacing in this whole issue is maybe what leads to my ultimate low score. Because it's mm -hmm. a lot of panels and pages of just kind of characters looking at each other talking about what they need to do it's like yeah you're in the tunnel and you need to go find the mutants before they will right. them this to your tunneling where, activity this is everybody else from the war college right so these are the kids that bishop was trying to train up they had gotten zapped by the fenris twins working with orcus and bishop got sent to this other world somehow and the rest of the kids are left behind in the tunnels wandering around and it is written completely in two separate halves. It's not like those books that they weave back and forth between scene to scene, and I just, you know, don't talk about it that way. This really is the first 10 pages of the book are about Bishop. The second 10 pages are about the kids back on Krakoa. And I'm going to say the art here in the second half does not look good. 
It, like, <laughs> I don't want to get too harsh on it because I certainly can't draw better, but it does not look like professional big two work. I really wonder if this was written on a super tight deadline or something because there are practically no backgrounds. Yeah. We go yeah. entire multiple pages with just color gradients in the background. Yes. And the faces are just rough and kind of misshapen. And the panels are just not creatively put together. It's it's just kind of crank it out, crank it out kind of a look to it. Yeah. Uh, it almost yeah. looks AI generated. I'm not going to start a Uh-oh. <laughs> secret conflict here, but it I don't looks, know. It the, looks the fingers and the teeth all look right. So I'm not going to say yeah. it's AI. But yeah, the only kind of cool thing that happens is that uh, uh, Cam Long, who's a mutant, I guess from New Mutants I'm not really so familiar with. He bumps into a mass, and a mass, I think, physically physically absorbs Cam, merges them into like an ogre-like creature, and then they bump into the male half of the Fenris twins and absorb him, and now there's some super, I don't know, ogre Voltron kind of a thing. Yes. I guess, that's a, I guess that's what a mass does, and that's, yeah. Uh, and we also find out kind of a little bit of what the Fenris twins are doing is that the Orcus people have modified the Blight Swill from Otherworld into something that doesn't just take away mutant powers and also acts as kind of like a, a Novocaine on the sentient island of Krakoa so they could be drilling down there without Krakoa telling Jug, hey, what's going on, or, or Black Tom finding out. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, I'd say that's... I can't imagine this feeding back into the main X-Men story at all. It seems like very much a, a cul-de-sac. So I'd say, yeah, if... It, when this hits Marvel Unlimited a couple months down the road, open it up, flip through those first few eight, nine pages, check out these designs of the other world's X-Men, and that's probably all you need from this. So I'm giving this book yeah. a four out of 10. <laughs> you keep going down. <laughs> now, that's what I had written down from the very beginning. I okay, had okay. written down in my notes. I know you Maybe were Maybe I just assumed that. you were going to stop at five, but that's that's <laughs> fine. Um, I'm at a five, five on this. I don't think it's great, okay. but- I don't hate it. the The biggest things I I get annoyed with mm-hmm. are Bishop, who is a time traveler, right? Sure. I'm sure he's seen many alternate realities and is completely used to like jumping locations, right? He's been and when he block, gets to yeah. this dimension, he's like, "What's going on? Oh my god!" I'm like, "Dude, you're a freaking time traveler. Like, this is not he's seen some weird, weird ass that- places, right? He yes. can't be freaked out by, oh my god, they're all black." Yes. <laughs> I mean, of all, I mean, if the Fenris twins were sent here, sure. Oh my God, they're yes. all black. That's right, of the Fenris twins. But Bishop, come on. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So that bothered me. And then similarly, if we recall, like what happened at the end of the first issue, right? The the drill thing shows up, and they interact with the mutants, right? And there's a scuffle, and the kids go running off, right? Mm-hmm. And the Fenris twins got to call back to Orcus and get some directions as to like what you're supposed to do. Like seriously. Like, go chase the kids. There's no reason for them to talk to Moira at this point. Right. It's not oh, rocket you, science. Do you want us to let the kids go so everyone knows that Orcus is here? Oh, yeah. no, actually, no. We don't want that happen to happen. Yeah. So it just felt like that whole scene was just to be like trying to show this is, oh, this is a big deal because they're in contact with Moira, right? Mm-hmm. But it just didn't, I've had a hard time believing. Like, yeah. even if it, even the Fenner twins are that dumb, you'd think the rest of the Orcus members there are like, no, come on, let's go I mean, get those kids. They're, they're probably union, right? If they're on break, they're on break. <laughs> Please send all letters to Jim at Weir's. Okay. So, yeah. So, I, I would give like the first half of the book about a six, the second yeah. half of the book about a two. That's where my four comes from. And then, likewise, last thing I'll say, then you get the, the young kids, right? They're 
in the middle of being hunted by orcas, but they have plenty of time to like yell at each other about, you know, do we stay and fight or do we go to the surface? Oh, I'm yeah, like, this bigger, is bigger, simple. bigger. This is freaking simple. Like you send like two of you to the surface and the rest of you stay and fight and try to stall, right? Like that's not a difficult decision. I figured that out in two seconds. But and instead, they all seem to have the same personality. I don't know these yes. characters very well, and I certainly didn't learn anything about them from this book. To me, they're just interchangeable bickering teenagers. Yeah. And I, I already have two of those of my own, so I don't need any more. <laughs> yeah, don't need it in a comic. Hello, listeners. Jason here, all by myself at this moment. Now, it's been a challenging recording day, not going to lie. So, what we're doing is Ruben has had to go. Uh, I'm going to record on Wolverine all by myself, because I'm sure you want to know all about Wolverine number 31. And then I'm going to send these files over to Jim, and he's going to try to edit this mess into something more or less listenable. So, if it sounds good... Congratulations to Jim. If it doesn't, all my fault. Onward to Wolverine number 31, Weapons of X, part one. Yes, we're back to a part one that's kind of still a part 73 of everything that's been going on, but hey, we're calling it part one. Written by Ben Percy, art by Juan Jose Rip, colored by Frank Darmada, letters by Corey Pettit, design Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. Now, last time out, at the end of Landmark issue number 30, we saw Wolverine track Beast down and then murder him to death. This being the Krakoan era, though, that death was very temporary. It lasted for the whole coming attractions page, and then we got an after-credit sequence of Beast auto-resurrecting an X-Force HQ without the benefit of the Five. In this issue, we go back and forth between the actions of Wolverine, who thinks that Beast is dead, and those of Beast himself, who knows that he isn't. Dead, that is. Okay, first, let's talk about Wolverine. Beast is dead sort of, and CIA pal Jeff Bannister, a.k.a. Maddie's dad, is in really rough shape. It looks like he's bleeding out of his chest, and then that blood is spurting into his own mouth, or maybe it's coming out of his mouth and chest. Either way, he's, he's having a rough time. So, Logan and Sage take him back to the Krakoan Healing Gardens, but not before a pretty cool-looking, but also mostly pointless fight between Logan and Beast's reanimated corpse. Beast's physical death triggered some fungal failsafe Hank had installed in himself. Creepy fungus brain stuff is very hip these days. Last of Us, Girl with All the Gifts, and right here in X-Men books, we've had Cordyceps Jones and Dr. Nemesis. Lots, lots of psychoactive fungus. Now, the familiarity of those other stories takes away some of the punch of this scene. It does look cool, though. Uh, made suitably gross and bloody by our artists Juan Jose Rip and Frank Darmada. With Zombie Beast put down for a second time, permanently we think, Sage and Logan do finally get Jeff to the Healing Gardens, where Jeff gets dumped into a gurney right next to his daughter Maddie, who is still unconscious and also in a bad way, after being stung by a genetically modified wasp last issue. <coughs> this family is not having a good week. Dr. Race is doing her best for them, but they do not wake up again this issue, so maybe we'll see what happens to them next time. Now, Logan feels bad for his part in enabling Beast's reign of no goodness. He goes off to the Five and demands access to all of Beast's memory files. We don't often talk about it anymore, but this seems like one hell of a privacy problem, doesn't it? Every mutant on the island, and presumably a lot of them off the island too, are having their minds read, and memories and personalities stored in Cerebro on a regular basis. This includes, like, Mr. Sinister, Sebastian Shaw, and the Fenris twins, you know, ones who have been scheming against their fellow mutants pretty consistently. Are we supposed to believe that Krakoa has all this data but aren't looking at it? That Beast wasn't constantly trawling through the database looking for threats to, to Krakoa or to himself? Probably one of those things we're not supposed to think about. 
In any event, Hope goes off to get Logan East's memories and discovers, surprise, they've pretty much all been erased. I'm not sure if we're supposed to think that, that this erasure just happened, like it was triggered by Beast's death and secret rebirth, or maybe Beast has never trusted his own memories to the Cerebro database and was using his own personalized cloud storage for his own personal backups, like he's got his, his Beast Plex server. Doesn't really matter either way. They're not here. Uh, we do get told on a data page that, quote, Beast did leave all files from the time period in which he joined the Avengers untouched. Now, this would have been Avengers number 151 to 211. That's from 1976 to 1981. Now, I'm not sure if this is a joke I'm not quite getting. Uh, is this Ben Perthy throwing shade, to, to steal from Jim, at that phase of Beast's career like it doesn't matter? Or is this maybe Percy giving himself a way out of this and kind of winking to us how he's going to undo this? Uh, and just to give credit where, where this is due, I first read this theory on the House to Astonish blog, which does a great job of talking about all these X-Books. You should check it out. House to Astonish. Uh, now, the theory is, you know, we've often asked, how does Beast come back from, from, from this? How do they make his character not broken again? Well, if the last Beast backup that still exists is from back then, maybe when this Beast eventually gets killed, which probably happens soon, the five cook up a new beast, but one that's rolled back to his early 1980s status quo. One who is innocent of all of this beast's crimes. Kind of corny, but, you know, I've read comics based on word ideas. This could even have some resonance with Domino's arc as another character who was brought back without quite all of her complement of memories. Much more extreme in Beast's case. Also, it kind of reminds me of the what Brian Michael Bendis did bringing back those time-displaced original five. This wouldn't be a time-displaced beast exactly, and there wouldn't be another beast there to have the contrast, but it would be a beast from a more innocent time period alongside the other X-Men from this time period. Okay, that's all we have from the Wolverine section. Now over to Beast Story. So our fresh, freshly hatched beast takes a moment to pose atop the skull-shaped X-Force HQ. He makes no attempt to hide himself, which seems kind of odd. Here and throughout these pages, Beast speaks his mind to us via narration boxes and does so in the most unsubtle way possible. I'm probably going to say unsubtle too many times this section because that is the number one word for what, what Ben Percy's writing is on Beast. Percy quadruples down on Beast being the most transparently self-righteous villain stereotype ever seen. Uh, there's not a single moment in which the reader is made to think, well, sure, he's gone too far, but he, he does have a point. No, Beast does not have a point. Ben Percy wants no ambiguity, no complexity. He doesn't want even the densest possible reader, you know who you are, to conclude for even an instant that Ben Percy thinks that Beast's actions are in any way justifiable. Uh, he does have Beast do some utterly ridiculous stuff that Juan Jose Reap looks, makes look very, very cool on the page. For instance, that skull-shaped headquarters we've been kind of laughing at for a while, turns out that's just the top part of an entire, to scale, for Cohen Kaiju. Uh, this mode is entered by Beast activating a subroutine called, again with no subtlety whatsoever, Beast Agenda which was the name of the last arc, but don't worry. Beast has this kaiju. Maybe it's more of a mecha because it's not alive. I'll stick with kaiju. It sounds cooler. It makes the kaiju stand up out of the ground, surely causing a fairly large earthquake and just stride out into the ocean. Utterly ridiculous. Looks super cool. Now, out there in the ocean, there's a submarine. This submarine has been a thorn in Beast's side for a while now. I mean, so he tells us it's not been mentioned on panel before at all. We see that the sub is manned. 
and we're told that it's operated by the UN, quote, as a vague threat, unquote, against Krakoa. Ben Percy doesn't like vague. So Beast has the kaiju grab the submarine and snap it in half above his head, surely killing all aboard. Next we see that inside the kaiju, Beast is growing five more beasts. Not beasts crossed with other mutants like Orcus might have done. These appear to be five exact copies of our current Hank McCoy, complete with whatever nearsightedness makes him wear those absurd little glasses. Here, our two story strands finally overlap. Black Tom is the first to notice, finally, that a big chunk of the island just stood up and walked away. Beast chooses this moment to make a, a bit of a Charles Xavier-style speech to his fellow X-Force members. He tells them they're all fired. Their services are no longer needed. It's like, like me on the Marvel podcast. I'm gone. He will be the new X-Force. That's Beast. Beast will be out there acting in the best interest of Krakoa, and he will act without control, limitation, or interference from anyone on Krakoa. Beast knows best. He's really setting himself up to be the protector of people who don't want the protection, but we know he's really in it for his own personal self-aggrandizement. Now, this Council of Hanks gets right to work creating some more mutants. These aren't fully cooked yet, but they appear to be at least four copies, probably more, of Wolverine, Logan version. Beast calls this program, again, without any subtlety, weapons, plural, of X. Now, I, I kind of like this, I gotta admit. Not, not the dumb weapons of X name, but that this is Beast's plan. If you remember, earlier in the series, way back in issue six, Beast had this whole extended metaphor of himself as a conductor and each of the other X-Force members as members of the orchestra. That didn't work out, right? It kind of went awry, which is why he's out on his own now. So he's simplified. In Beast's mind, X-Force should be just this. Someone to do the thinking, that's got to be Beast, of course, and someone to do the killing. And why not the one who's the best he is at what that is, which is Wolverine? And why not several of each of those? Several Beasts, several Wolverines. I'm sure nothing could possibly go wrong. So I'd call that a pretty strong ending, an extreme lack of subtlety, and some silly but cool-looking moments along the way. I don't think this is a classic, but I was pretty entertained. And at least we don't just have Beast getting a week's worth of silent treatment from his team again. His actions finally, and I've been saying this for many issues now, but it's really happening, really honest to God, his actions have final, real, meaningful consequences. It's kind of strange that this is happening in Wolverine instead of X-Force, and I'd be annoyed if I were just an X-Force reader and I wasn't seeing this storyline finish up in there. You know, when I started talking to you, I was kind of lower in this book, but along the way, I think I've talked myself up to a 7.3 out of 10. So, Ruben, what did you think about Wolverine number 31? You know, I've been very critical of Ben Percy's storyline in general. I kind of liked this issue a little bit, uh, and I like the idea, a spoiler, of there being kind of a team of unhinged Dark Beast clones that are now kind of out and about in their, like, I don't know what you'd call it thing, Skull Island robot plotting to try to like help Krakoa stay around. That's in my mind an interesting development and also gives us an opportunity to go away from the storyline, which I'm kind of over with. Okay, so I'm going to go into more detail on that, but Ruben, do you want to give a a score for Wolverine before you go? Yeah, it was about a 6.5 for me. I, I thought, unfortunately, I feel like if the rest of this story leading up to this had been handled in a better way where we just didn't have a Hank McCoy that was just a total jerk that maybe this would be like a, oh this is a really interesting development but there's like no moral questions about like did he do the right thing or not right he's been just a total like monster this whole time so 
I can't get too excited about it, but it is moving the story forward, which is nice. And uh, just as a plot device, I think it's kind of interesting because if Ball of X happens, right, like this, I'm curious, like how, where was Hank when that happens? And because he's really setting himself up to like be their kind of global protector going forward, right from the shadows. Hank McCoy, Batman. <laughs> he's not the beast they deserve, but they're the beast they need. Something like that. Correct. Some, Correct. I never exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 It felt exactly like that. You know, I'll be the villain or whatever. <laughs> if they need somebody to hate. Okay. Uh, that is Ruben's take on Wolverine. Hey Ruben, what do we say at the end of every episode? Read more X-Men comics. Bye-bye.